All righty, folks. So every day I do a bit of mailbag on the show. This is the stuff that usually goes behind the paywall on the Ben Shapiro show. You have to actually be a subscriber over at dailywireplus.com to get your questions answered. But I want to give you a taste of that. Let's jump into some mailbag. Rick says, Ben, how would you structure a series of laws to prevent wealthy bond villains like George Soros from wielding a disproportionate amount of influence over American politics? Is there any chance of such laws being effective in practice or ever even getting passed regardless of who in charge? Well, here's the problem. George Soros is an American citizen. He has the ability to contribute to a wide variety of campaigns. There is no way of essentially stopping George Soros without also squashing the ability of conservatives to intervene in elections via funding. That the best response to George Soros in these DA's races is to run somebody who is not a George Soros-backed person and give them the money. But if you if you do what the left does and you try to just kind of cut out all funding entirely, what ends up happening is that the people who are backed by the media have a systemic advantage. Plus, a lot of the in-kind contributions that are given by unions aren't counted as such. It actually creates systemic advantages for, for Democrats. Don says, hey, Ben, my family was recently invited to go to Disney World. All expenses paid. I'm torn because traveling is sort of out of reach for me. Like you, I enjoy the old classic Disney. I'm disgusted with the new agenda they want to push to my kids. On one hand, I feel like respectfully declining would rob my kids of an experience they wouldn't normally enjoy. On the other hand, I don't want to give any kind of support to a company who lies about the so-called don't say gay bill, promotes racism in the Proud family, and so on. What are your thoughts on this type of situation? So listen, it is painful for me not to be able to take my kids to Disney World. One of the great things about moving to Florida from California is that in California, we were 45 minutes from Disneyland. We were annual past members. We used to take our kids, I would say, at least once a month. We were intending on doing the same thing here in Florida. I have not been able to take my kids to Disney World for a couple of years. I'm just not interested in spending my my money there. And yeah, again, that's a hard one. Depriving yourself of those experiences is tough. You know, what, I, what I would suggest is maybe there's another theme park that you can take your kids to. There are a bunch of them in Orlando. Take your kids to SeaWorld. Take your kids to Universal. There are plenty of other places to take your kids uh, that might be better. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm very hesitant to give my business to, business to uh, Disney at this point. David says, hey, Ben. Long-time listener, first-time writer. My question is, why does the Republican Party let Democrats seemingly run the narrative in every situation? It seems to me they do a weak job of combating all the fake news and misleading information pumped out by Democrats. And when misinformation comes out, the Republican leadership doesn't say anything. The only one that does is DeSantis. It's almost to the point where the GOP leadership should take out ads on CNN refuting their false claims. It's very frustrating that Democrats and left-leaning media are able to run circles around Republicans and right-leaning media. I think there's a crucial aspect Democrats are missing, essentially bad messaging. Thank you and keep up the great job. Well, one of the big mistakes a lot of Republicans make, and DeSantis doesn't, is that DeSantis doesn't feel the need to go on CNN to explain himself. He doesn't feel the need to go on on NBC News. He doesn't feel the necessity to respond to left-wing media outlets, and so he'll just ignore them. And that means that he gets to drive a narrative on his own and he makes the media respond to him. Sometimes scarcity in the media is a good thing. Most Republicans, you know, they're looking for ubiquity. There's a real collective action problem among Republicans. The way that you get famous, the way you get donations is by being attacked by the media, which means you have to appear in the media. But that also means you let the media decide the agenda. What DeSantis is doing because he's a governor and because he can actually drive a policy agenda is inherently different from many of the legislators who are maybe in a position of no power and who are desperate to see the little red light that, that gives them attention. Uh, until the party leadership is able to actually exercise some power over its membership and say, listen, we are going to be extremely disciplined in how we approach the media. You need to run through some sort of centralized clearinghouse and we are going to be all on message. Many of us are not going to respond to the media at all. You know, that, that's going to be a very difficult thing to pull off. So there's a real misalignment of incentives. Nate says, hey, Ben, love the Daily Wire on your show. Something has been nagging at me. I'd love your thoughts. I frequently hear you say that the far left ideas on DEI, LGBTQ plus minus divided by sign, tilde, rights, transgendering the children, et cetera, are not what we want or not the popular opinion in America. If that's true, why does it not only seem entirely embraced by much of America, but encouraged and celebrated? 
It's truly unpopular. Why would so much of the mainstream media advocate for it and push it ad nauseum? To me, it's akin to a vendor continuing to stock and sell a product nobody wants. That vendor would go out of business. Is it possible more of America actually agrees with these far-left liberals than we'd like? Well, I mean, certainly more of America agrees with them than, than I would like. But no, I mean, the answer is that, let's say that you're a company and you have two choices. One is to market for Pride Month and the other is to not market for Pride Month. The core assumption of a lot of these companies is that if you market for Pride Month, everybody who's very into Pride Month is going to buy a lot of product and everyone else is so shy of being attacked for not being on board that they're just going to go and buy product like normal. In other words, there is no cost and there is great benefit to going woke because the non-wokes are so scared of speaking out because they're the quote-unquote silent majority that they're never going to actually fight back. And this is what a lot of these companies have been relying on for quite a while is the, the intimidation and the silence and the media tsunami to quash opposition. So you get the upside of the people who are very militantly on the left and you get no downside. And this, by the way, is true. I mean, if you had, there's a Harvard Business School study fairly recently. And what it showed is that if there is a corporation, just plain corporation, no political aspect to the corporation, its positive negative rating among people on the left is fairly neutral. If that corporation is left, among the left, the positive negative rating is still pretty neutral. If the corporation is designated conservative in any way, the positive ratings drop by 30 points for the left. They immediately start hating the company. And so, but, but that doesn't hold on the right. Among conservative audiences, if a corporation is considered right-wing, conservatives are slightly friendlier, maybe. If it's considered neutral, conservatives are slightly friendly. And if it's considered left, conservatives don't boycott it. And so it's a very asymmetric distribution of incentives. And, and so it's not that a lot of America agrees with the radical agenda. It's that a lot of America is unwilling to sound off on their disagreement. A lot of America is unwilling to actually fight back against the disagreement. Troy says, my question is regarding the Supreme Court. Do you believe the court would be different if Samuel Alito was chief justice? In my opinion, Alito should have been chief justice because Sandra Day O'Connor announced her retirement. Bush nominated Roberts to replace her as associate. If Chief Justice Rehnquist didn't pass away prior to Roberts' confirmation, I believe that Alito would be chief justice. What are your thoughts of a chief justice Alito? Am I overanalyzing the position of chief justice? What many and many decisions would look the same? Thanks again for everything you do. A lot of the decisions might, might look the same, but I do think there's a difference. I mean, Chief Justice Roberts, because he gets to decide how a majority opinion is written when there is a majority vote, and he writes many of them himself, he's constantly looking for the consensus position. If Alito were chief justice, a lot of the dicta in these decisions would be a lot more stringent, and the decisions themselves would be a lot more constitutionally consistent. Uh, I, I think that Chief Justice Roberts was a bad pick by George W. Bush. I said so at the time, making me one of the few who did. Ali says, hey, Ben, love the show, great work. My question is regarding Jordan Peterson and his episode on Joe Rogan several weeks ago. Dr. Peterson brings up Ron DeSantis in correlation with the right censoring free speech in the form of trying to stop CRT in schools. Peterson seems to argue if we take measures to stop this form of speech, it can bleed into other areas. It can become authoritarian in nature and most importantly can be used by the left. I agree. CRT and other obvious indoctrinations are bad ideologies that should not be taught. I'm grateful to have Peterson DeSantis, Rogan DW, et cetera, fighting this fight. What are your thoughts? Thanks and appreciate your insight. Well, there is no world in which the classroom is, the publicly funded classroom is a free speech area. It's not. You have to teach a curriculum. The curriculum is mandated by the state. The state saying we don't wish you to teach crap in the classroom is perfectly legitimate. I mean, this, this has been true for literally the entirety of the public school system. So Ron DeSantis saying you don't get to teach spurious theories about how America is systemically racist in the classroom is not a violation of free speech. Those principles are not core in the classroom. If you did this at, for example, a public school, like a public university, that's a little bit different um, because once you get to the university level, then there start to be free speech issues. But in public schools, lower schools, that, that issue just doesn't apply. Peter says, hey, Ben. 
I really appreciate your show and your amazing insights. I've been especially intrigued by your philosophy that mankind discovers our meaning primarily through the rules and roles we occupy and live into. When I first heard you articulate it in an episode of Backstage, I was immediately taken by how profound it was and how perfectly explains the current widespread despair of our current culture. It seems like a melding between Aristotle's view that we are a political man and Burke's view of how rules and roles develop in a society. It also seems more complex and nuanced than that. I was wondering, is this concept something you develop personally? If so, do you have a cool name for your philosophy, like political man or psychological man? Can we expect a book elaborating on this philosophy anytime soon? So I do have that book ready. We're not sure when we're going to release it. Uh, I've been calling it role theory for the moment. And again, it's sort of a synthesizing of various theories. There's some Aristotle. There's definitely some Burke. Uh, there, there's some other philosophers and sociologists who come into play, Emil Durkheim. Um, but I, I think that you know, the basic idea, which is that the way that we actually move in the world is via the roles and rules that those encompass. And that encompasses social institutions. And that encompasses how we interact with those institutions. That's obviously true. And one of the things that classical liberalism gets wrong is that it takes for granted that many of the qualities that we actually receive by our interaction with the world are internal to us. There's a point that Robert Nisbet, the, the sociologist from the 1940s and 50s makes. We tend to think that many of the things, you know, our sociability, marriage, family, these are things that are internally driven. That is not true. They are driven by institutions that have been created over time. You destroy those institutions and the individual is left basically unmoored. And that's what we are seeing right now. Sarah says, I saw the search episode with Russell Brand. You mentioned you aren't a libertarian. I've been watching for several years. You used to talk about your libertarianism quite frequently. When and why did you change your beliefs? Also, I've described myself as a libertarian instead of a Republican because I believe in having a small government. However, I'm fairly liberal on social policies like gay marriage and legalization of weed. Is this a wrong classification? Thanks for all you do. So what I've said is that I tend toward libertarianism on the federal level because I don't think that pragmatically the federal government has the ability to control our lives. When it comes to local government, like very local government, I'm not a libertarian. Uh, you know, I don't think that zoning laws, for example, are the worst thing in the world. I think that local communities should be able to control the kind of community that they wish to live in at a, at a very you know, significant level because there's a higher level of homogeneity of interest in local communities than there is as you abstract up the chain. I'm a conservative because I believe in the the viability of social institutions in a way that many libertarians do not. And I don't believe that it's the job of the state to stand between individuals and social institutions generally. Jonathan says, hey, Ben, would you mind giving a shout out to amazing, my amazing wife, Ruth? She's a badass attorney and supported me through my deployment to Afghanistan and subsequent medical retirement from the Army. Thanks for what you're doing. Absolutely. She sounds amazing. And thank you for your service. Trevor says, Ben, I enjoy listening to your show. Why do you think there seems to be a boost in popularity in Marxism and socialism over the last several years? Pretty much every socialist regime I know about killed their own citizens. Most of these leftists claim to be about peace and equality. It seems odd they'd support socialism. So there's been a widespread rebranding attempt with regard to socialism to basically say that social democracy, like Norway, Denmark, France, Britain, that these are actually socialist countries. Wrong. These are not Marxist countries. These are capitalist countries that have a bunch of social welfare programs. That is not the same thing. You can say that the social welfare programs are socialist in nature. You can't say that overall these are socialist countries because that's not true. Socialist countries are about essentially state ownership of and redistribution of resources. Well, what socialists like to say is it's all about just fairer redistribution of resources. But, you know, that's not necessarily socialism. Socialism typically comes along with more than that. So it's, it's really a definitional issue. Rebecca says, hey, man, I'm a big fan. Thanks for all you do. In response to a mailbag response you gave recently to the mom with three small kids, I ask you to consider the following questions. Is it fair for both parents to work full time unless truly necessary? Is it wise to let non-family care for little ones at the crucial ages of zero to three? In regards to the submissive wife issue, wouldn't seeking advice from a priest be advisable? I think our culture would greatly benefit from encouraging a parent to stay home for zero to three. I know research as well as my personal experience backs this up. On a separate note, your explanation of the banking situation has been super helpful to me. Well, I appreciate that. Um, is it fair for both parents to work full time unless truly necessary? I mean, I think generally, 
no, it's not fair to the kids. You do need parents home as much as humanly possible with kids. So if it's not necessary, then certainly you should think it through. Uh, is it wise to let non-family care for the little ones at the crucial ages of zero to three? I mean, again, family is preferable. That's not available for everyone. Um, and also, I don't think it's a purely binary situation. It's like it's not like all mom or all nanny. Very often it's a combo of the two, for example. Ryan says, how do the libs get away with canceling people for blackface, but they can promote transgenderism? They said blackface was offensive to black Americans and that only someone black can be black and you can't pretend to be black. Doesn't transgenderism equally degrade women when a man pretends to be a woman? It seems like society should at least be as much opposed to transgenderism as they are to someone engaging in blackface. Yet Democrats seem to promote one idea of identifying yet canceling another idea of identifying. Seems like should, they should have to answer for this hypocrisy. Well, you would think that they should, right? But they, they don't because it's a power game. The left gets to change the rules routinely. Race is useful to them. Racial identitarianism is very, very useful to the left. Gender non-identitarianism is very useful to the left. The left loves racial identitarianism because it allows people to divide and conquer by racial group. They do not like gender identitarianism because it actually starts to require social institutions like marriage to, to militate those differences and to alleviate the, the differences between men and women, the consequences of those differences. You know, the, the androgenization of society is a left-wing goal, which means that sex is no longer important and indeed must be obliterated. Racial androgyny is actually not a left-wing goal. They, they, they prefer racial conflict as a, as a mode of destroying social institutions and, and gathering more power to the state. Ari says, hey, Ben, I'd like to ask about your opinion on VP Kamala Harris. You often say that she failed upward into her current position. Could you explain that in further detail? Sure. Uh, she was apparently a DA in, in San Francisco and elevated her position because she was Willie Brown's girlfriend, who was then mayor of San Francisco. Then she ran for attorney general. She won. She was a horrible attorney general. The crime rates went up under Kamala Harris. She basically spent her days yelling about gay marriage. Then she failed up into becoming a senator because she won the nomination. She was a terrible senator from California where she said foolish things routinely and was involved in some of the worst aspects of Senate conduct while she was there up to and including the Kavanaugh hearings. Then she failed upward into her presidential race where she was widely considered a front runner and flamed out. Then she failed upward into the vice presidency. So yeah, I mean, she just keeps failing and keeps being elevated. Nathan says, hey, Ben, how can the Biden administration decide to secure all deposits of SVB instead of $250,000 maximum? Shouldn't that take an act of Congress? So I'd have to read the actual law regarding the Federal Reserve. Uh, usually it should take an act of Congress to actually raise that maximum, but it's possible that that regulation has been created by the Federal Reserve under pre-existing authority. I assume that that's in fact the case. Alrighty, we've reached the end of this week's mailbag. If you wish to have your question answered in the mailbag in the future, head on over to dailywireplus.com, become a subscriber. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So, 
I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.